0: where we closed out last time was in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're looking at the final chapter of the book of Matthew. We had talked previously from chapter 27 about the power of Jesus' death, and we talked... Last time, from chapter 28, about the power of his resurrection. Um, We wanted to really stress the importance of grasping about the resurrection and about the crucifixion um, to not view it only as a legal matter. You know, we wanted to work really hard to point to the fact that there was much, much more to it than just legal satisfaction of sin debt on our account. Um, There was dramatic power in his death and his resurrection that affects every aspect of our life. Um, What he destroyed by his death and by his resurrection has made us who we are, given us the ability to be who we were called to be, recreated us, makes us new creatures. So, I mean, it's, it's powerfully transforming in every aspect of our lives. So when we looked at chapter 28, and we'll read it again just to kind of grab the context of what we were looking at, verse 1 starts with, "...in the end of the Sabbath, so as we were dawning towards the beginning of the first day of the week, Sunday morning, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door... And sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and raiment was white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers, those Roman guards, did shake and become as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus to them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed to the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money to the soldiers saying, say you, his disciples came by night and stole away him away while you slept. And if this came to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. So, As we were talking about with the resurrection and what we find in the power of the resurrection, um, we mentioned three things last time about how the resurrection makes you who you are. And we brought up the verse from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 where Paul would say as he's explaining and giving a discourse on the resurrection that it is the grace of God and obviously by default the resurrection that I am who I am. That everything that Christ accomplished and everything God did in my life, making me a new creature because of what Christ accomplished in the resurrection is what made me who I am. Paul, who was a murderer, is now a born again child of God or a preacher. And what Paul's argument was is by the grace of God, I am who I am. That should make everybody who stands to <laughs> preach the word of God feel very comfortable. Because if Paul, who was a murderer, can be changed by the miraculous power of the grace of God through the power of the resurrection, then there is no sin on this earth that escapes that radical power of Jesus Christ. That's what I think is really important for us to wholeheartedly grab onto. When we talk about preaching about grace and what we think about grace and how we view God with grace, you know, you can come up with a lot of good theological arguments against kind of like what Paul does in Romans and in the book of Galatians and things like that, where you try to go out and you're laying out these arguments about how it's not by your works. It's all by grace and all this stuff. And we can really argue those very successfully by the Bible. There is a huge difference, as we have said over and over again, about arguing for the Theological principles of grace and salvation by grace and applying graciousness in our lives. There is a huge difference. It's on display every day. Plenty of people who preach that it is all by the grace of God and not by your works will still live and do things that are contrary to that very principle. They will act in ways that are ungracious They will act in ways that are pharisaical and judicious versus gracious and merciful. And what you find here is Paul's testimony is, guys, if God can change me, there's nobody that's exempt from this. There's nobody's sin that disqualifies them. There's nobody's misgivings and problems and things they've done that Jesus Christ did not pay for on the cross and His miraculous power can change them. So when we look at how grace is shown forth in the gospel, what we see are some really, really messed up people who the resurrection's power changes completely. You would have never expected Paul to be on the top 10 preachers list for the church. Okay. He would not have been the one whose resume you would have put up and go, hey, guys, I know it sounds a little crazy, but maybe we should invite him and let him start preaching for us. Because everybody would say it would be a small crowd once he got done with it. Okay. And it wouldn't be because of his preaching. But the testimony of Paul, in and of itself, is enough to show us that what Christ did on the cross in the power of his death and the power of his resurrection is to be able to take anyone, even a murderer of Christians, and turn him into the greatest preacher there ever was for the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a pretty big testimony. So when we ourselves start struggling with the idea of who we think deserves to be in certain places within the kingdom, we have to go back and go, well, the example that the Bible gives us is that we don't really have the ability to make those judgments. It also should give us hope that you can't look back in your life and go, well, these things that I've done disqualify me. There's no way that I can continue to be what I am or there's no way that I would be accepted in the church or I would be accepted in the kingdom of God or accepted in these places because there's just things that I've done that just they seemingly disqualify me. And what we see through the power of the cross and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he's going, guys, I died for that. There's nothing that disqualifies you because I've already paid for it. I died for it. In fact, don't start saying this disqualifies you because I paid for that. I paid for that now. I paid for what you're going to do 10 years from now. I've paid for it all. What I will tell you is is that what I have paid for and what I have called you to, you repent and you follow and you do. Okay, because I've paid for it. It's done. All right, you just need to get back to doing what I told you to do. Yeah, you're going to have slip ups. Yes, you're going to have problems. You're going to trip. You're going to fall. You're going to do things. Welcome to humanity. It's going to happen. This is what you're assured of. I already paid for it. The power of my death is that all those things that you're going to look at two, three, four, five thousand years from now and go, oh, man, this is the one thing Jesus is going. No, I paid for that, too. I paid for it all. I died for it all. Don't cheapen my death by saying there's something you do 10 years from now that all of a sudden is outside of the bounds of the power of my death. No, my death covered it all. And by my resurrection, I killed forever that death. You're no longer bound by it. So quit quit going through life pretending like you are. I destroyed the power of death and hell. I put to death death and hell. I, I, I did it. Give me attaboys and now live like I accomplished what I say I accomplished. So the power of the resurrection made Paul say, hey, I am who I am by the power of his resurrection. I'm going to keep preaching it. I'm going to live it. I'm going to operate underneath it because it is who I, that's how I got here. What a kind of profound mental understanding. I got to be where I am today because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let that be kind of the motto in the back of our minds. I am who I am because of what Christ did on the cross and what he did in the resurrection. It also, as we talked about, gives us significant hope, you know, and that's a common theme with the resurrection, one that we've probably heard like a million and a half sermons on about how the resurrection gives us hope, where our hope is in the resurrection. You know, obviously, if Jesus didn't die and stay dead, then we ain't going to die and stay dead. There's hope in that, right? And we even have the verse that we quote all the time. If in this life only we had hope in Jesus Christ, we'd be of all men most miserable. Why? It's always, that's always a verse that people kind of roll over and they can't figure out. It is saying exactly what it says. If all we had was this life, and all we had was this life and even had Jesus in this life, but we still only had this life, we would be miserable. Because of all the goodness, all the greatness, all the superior moral teachings, all those things that Christ did, it's like, but who cares? There's nothing to do after this. We're nothing but Darwinian accidents and we're just going to poof and non-exist at some point. There's no point to it. What gives life its meaning is that this is not all there is. I mean, even Dave Ramsey when you're doing like financial stuff will tell you, don't worry about saving for, you know, X number of years and generations because guess what? You're going to die and that money is going to go to no one, okay? Or if you look at the examples of like David David laid all this framework out for the kingdom and he had all these things established and he's passing it on to Solomon and it's such a great moment and even Solomon comes back up and goes, yeah, but you know what as i'm sitting here jotting down this book of ecclesiastes i'm going to tell you it's all vanity because i'm going to die and everything i've accomplished is going to go to two morons who are going to destroy it within like a year okay so even solomon the the presumably the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth is jotting this you know Just uplifting book, okay? And telling you about it, basically how everything is vanity and nothing continues to exist. And if all we had in this life was this life, we would be of all men most miserable because it's all vanity. And even in that, he's going, you know what? I've got all this wealth. God blessed me to have more wealth than anybody else. He blessed me to have all this wisdom. He blessed me. He blessed me. He blessed me. And here's the reality. I'm going to die. And when I die, all of these natural things are going to pass on. To my children who are going to mess it up. That is such an encouraging thought, isn't it? So encouraging. Great. I'm going to do all these great things. I'm going to establish this kingdom. We're going to hit a high water mark, and man, it's a kingdom that will last forever. You know, the Roman Empire used to have this idea of this, you know, continuous reign. The Roman Empire would never end. Even the Nazis had this idea of this eternal Reich, this third Reich that would last a millennia. We see how that went, okay? The reality is in both cases, it's not going to last forever, okay? It's going to die away and everything you worked so hard to build up and stick to hopefully last forever will die in one fell swoop. So what does that, what kind of encouragement does that give us? Not a lot, okay? It really makes us go, well, then what's the point? What's the point of accumulating massive amounts of wealth? When you're going to die, it will stay here, and probably the government will take half of it. What's it going to matter that you establish some kind of building, or some kind of structure, or some kind of organization? Because guess what? At some point, it will die. So even Jesus and the kingdom and all of this that he established, if this in this world was the only place that it existed or could exist, and there was nothing beyond that, then Paul's going, we would still be miserable. Because yeah, we've got this great philosophy, but it will eventually die just like every other religion. And we will go into non-existence. Well, that's not very cheery. In fact, that's why in one of the in one of the verses in um, in chapter 15 of first Corinthians, he'll say, you know, if the dead rise not, if there is no resurrection, let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. OK, that is the antithesis to the resurrection hope. OK, that is if there is no resurrection, this is basically the motto we adopt because there's no point to life beyond this. There's no, you're not saving up for anything. You're not existing for anything. You don't have a purpose. You have no hope and therefore you have no purpose because there's nothing else. So Paul says, so you just take the maxim. Hey, why not eat and drink for tomorrow? We die. Even the writers of the epistles will make this point when they're talking to fellow believers. They'll say, you know, you make all these plans. You say things like, well, tomorrow we're going to rise up and we're going to go to town and we're going to do all this stuff. And he says, don't actually say that because you have no clue. Tomorrow you could die. He says, instead, you need to say, Lord willing, we will go do all these things. So even the, the writers of the epistles, as they're writing to fellow believers, they'll say, you need to recognize that your life is terminal, right? You have a disease that's terminal. It's called sin and frailty in a destructed being. That's what it is. And ultimately, it's going to get you one of these days. He said, so don't even start making plans like, oh, we're going to go do this and we're going to make all this money and we're going to set up this and we're going to make all these plans. He said, because in all honesty, you don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow tomorrow. He says, so you don't make plans like that. You don't. That's not saying you don't do anything. You just sit on the couch and go, well, tomorrow I could die. So no, he says, you need to make you need to reframe your mind around. If it's the Lord's will, Lord willing, I will go do all these things. If you've ever heard somebody say that, that's what they're trying to quote at. Now, whether we're actually living like that, that's a different picture. But that is the kind of mindset that they wanted you to have. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Only God does. So you need to say, hey, Lord, if it's your will for this to happen, we'll go. And that's how we'll live our lives. But even that hints pretty directly at the understanding our lives are frail. We're not going to make it out of this world alive. But the difference is, if that's your only mindset, if there's nothing past that, we are miserable. We're even more miserable because we have all this knowledge. We've been given all this knowledge about Jesus Christ and all this knowledge about his beauty and his holiness and his majesty and all these things just to know that it's not going to go past this world. Well, that would be pretty doggone miserable. Thankfully, the resurrection gives us a clear picture that that is not the case. The resurrection shows us, no, this life isn't all there is. No, it isn't some kind of Darwinian endpoint. No, it's not non-existent. It's resurrection. It's life beyond. It's another stage. It's a perfect new heaven and earth. It is an existence beyond this frail, destroyed existence. He says, now all the things that you hear and know and learn about the resurrection give you hope, but it also gives you purpose. It's not we eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's we eat and drink for the glory of God. We live by the will of God for tomorrow. And if we die, guess what? We go on past this because of the resurrection. So the existence and purpose that we have will extend beyond this natural life into an internal life. Through the resurrection. So the resurrection is that thing that gives us identity. It gives us hope. And it gives us purpose. So then as he kind of concludes this section of Matthew. He makes a point at the very end. Because again we're talking about what does this all mean for us. How do we wrap a. Bow on the top of this entire message that's been going on for three and a half years and 28 chapters. How is it? What does all this do? What is the purpose of everything that has been preached and taught by Jesus to this point? Again, there was obviously the idea that Jesus had plans for us post his resurrection. Amen. Jesus obviously had in his mind a game plan for us after his resurrection. It was not enjoy yourselves, rock in the cradle of grace. One day I'll get you home, but you don't have really a whole lot to do. I've taken care of everything because it's by grace. There's nothing you got to do. And therefore just enjoy life, rock on. And one day we'll set all this right. That's not how this ends. This ends with Jesus saying, I've got the torch and I'm giving it to you. Take off. You've got stuff to do. Okay. That's how this is concluded. So then we have to kind of get our minds around that. We have to understand that there is more to our existence post-resurrection than just existing. We have work to do. We have been tasked with work to do. We have been commanded by God with work to do. We're not just sitting back here and enjoying it. We're not just laying around at a spa and soaking up all the ambiance. We have work to do commanded by our Lord. So how does he close it out? Well, as he's closing it out, he says, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. And that was a post-resurrection achievement. That was something that you see out of Isaiah and you see in Revelations where, you know, the lamb was the one who was able to open the seal. The lamb was the one who triumphed. The lamb was the one who finally was seated on the throne. All enemies made his footstools. That's the picture we get. Jesus proclaiming here, guys, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Let that kind of soak in for a second. Wrap your mind around that statement. That's who we profess to follow. That's who when we say we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and we are followers of Jesus Christ and we obey and believe in Jesus Christ. It is the one who we are saying has all authority in heaven and earth. Now that that gives us two directions to think about. Number 1 is the brilliant understanding that in our lives, in everything that we do, in everything we've been tasked with, and everything we face, we have the one who has all the power and authority, okay? The Jesus Christ that we're talking about is the one who has all power and authority, which means there's nobody else to go to. There's nobody else that we turn to. There's nobody else we look for. We most certainly don't need to be looking at ourselves to solve these problems because we don't have all the power. We have the one who does. But it's certainly not by our hands. The second thing about that is is all Authority rests in him, which means there's nobody in this world who has more authority over our lives than Jesus. And there's nobody in this world who is outside the bounds of Jesus's authority. Nobody. That means the president of the United States is still under the authority of Jesus Christ. That means that any ruler, any person, any bigwig, any multi-billionaire, whoever it may be, however big their pants may be, whatever, they're still under the authority of Jesus Christ. In fact, in this, Jesus is proclaiming his totalitarian status, okay? I am in authority over everything, I showed you while I was here my authority over the created world. I can make the wind stop. I can make the wind start. I can heal dead people. I can do all these things. I can show you how just in the created order I am in control. But we can just keep rewinding and we can see plenty of examples where no matter who the ruler is, whether it's Egypt or whether it's Babylon or whatever, God has consistently proven he has the authority over everybody's life. There's nobody outside of that. Now, under that authority, hopefully you fall into two camps of those who recognize and are obedient to Jesus's authority and those who are wicked and rebelling against Jesus's authority. But it's still under his authority. There's nobody that Jesus is going, no, they're kind of on the outskirts. I really don't have a lot to do with them. Know everybody, everything, all the stars in the heavens, all the created order, the matter, the molecules, the atoms, the quarks and the subatomic protons, whatever it may be. All of that is under the authority of Jesus Christ, which is such a beautiful thing. When he makes statements like you are held together by the power of his word. That's that that goes to the subatomic level. Okay, we are like in quantum theory when you get to that point. He is like string theorying and all sorts of things with your bodies. He's keeping it as it is. All the mysterious, unknown things that people still have not cracked yet. Jesus is like, yep, and just my my word, my authority is holding you and all these wonderful, miraculous things in place. So that statement puts us and everybody else exactly where they are in the pecking order. You're under the authority of Jesus Christ. Well, but I don't believe in him. Good for you. You're still under his authority. Well, I do believe in him, but I want to live the life any way I want to. Well, guess what, brother? You're under the authority of Jesus Christ. So I would start getting a little bit recognizing that. Okay. This is how it is. You don't have any way This is not a democracy. You don't vote for it. This is how it is. Jesus said, this is how you're going to live. This is who you're going to listen to. This is how you're going to obey me. This is how you're going to love me and love your neighbors. This is how it is. I'm in authority. By the way, I died and raised from the dead. You didn't do that. That puts me in authority over you. So if I tell you to do this, guess what you're going to do? You don't get to shop around and find something else. This is the express commandment of God. Now, with that in mind, he then turns to his disciples, who, as we talked about, there was this kind of number that is gathered around here that met him in Galilee. When you, when he meets with them in Galilee, he gives them this great commission, as it is called. And it is recorded in all three Gospels in different... Ways here, he says, go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, obviously, we have probably said this a lot before, but we'll say it again. We know and understand that the teach all nations is not just the idea that you walk in there with a Bible and say, this is what Jesus says. It's actually making disciples in all nations. So a disciple is someone who is following the teachings of Jesus Christ. So you can't just walk up and throw a PowerPoint on somebody like it's actually an active teaching process that spans throughout our entire lives as disciples. None of us hit a mark where we're like, you know what, I've got this whole Jesus thing on lockdown and my discipleship is done and now I am past discipleship and I'm in whatever. No, we're always learning and growing and changing and even things that we feel really, really solid about 10 years ago, 10 years later we'll go, you know what, I was a little bit off about that. You know, things were a little bit more nuanced than I thought they were. Things were a little bit less black and white like I thought they were. It's just amazing how God continues to reveal and show he's in authority and not us. And there's situations that we'll just think are so lined up, so black and white, so perfect. And God will go, just watch me just move some color around into this bad boy. Just watch me show you how throughout all of creation, I am the one you're to rely on and not your picture of what you think is right and wrong, black and white. You trust me. You follow me. You let me show you how I would have you to live. In Mark's account, he puts it this way. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up sermons, serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, again, you had a point especially in the first let's say 50 to 90 years after we departed from this moment in acts chapter 1 and 2 you had these things play out we can look at see paul traveling and landing on islands and getting bitten by snakes and it you know we we saw all that we saw peter healing people we see, oh, you saw all these things come to pass okay you saw these things happen You saw Jesus's words play out. And basically what he is telling them here, you have been tasked with a a thing to do. And guess what? You're going to meet adversity on the way. But here's what you need to remember. Like he says in Matthew, I'm with you always, no matter what it is. And this reality here, he's talking about, man, you're going to get bitten by snakes and I'm just going to kind of like throw them off of you and say, get up, walk it off, keep going. There's more to do. And you're going to lay hands on sick people continuing to show forth my power as it has been transitioned from me to you. Now, my representatives here on this world, we're going to see this play out each and every moment of the book of Acts and all these things. You see this play out. But what you see primarily play out is God's commandment, Christ's commandment to us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That is still a commandment today. I don't see in parentheses an expiration date on that. Do you? It's not in there. In fact, in none of these occurrences of the Great Commission, do you see an expiration date? There has there's always been this argument and I will always till I die counter this argument this was not fulfilled yet okay it is not complete there is not a moment where every nation in the world was gathered everyone heard the gospel and we're done it's not the case that is erroneous If that happened, then what in the world are we here for? Why are we still baptizing people? Why are we still preaching? If it was all supposed to be fulfilled at one time, especially in Acts chapter 2, about, you know, 50 days later, whoops, we're done. The church is done. The mission is accomplished. There's nothing else to do. We can just rock in the cradle of grace and ride this thing out. We don't even have to come to church because what Christ commanded the church as the purpose of the church going forward was completed 50 days later. The most efficient process ever known to creation. But that's not the case. This continues on. Like we looked at when we were talking about A few chapters back where Jesus would say that, especially with the woman who was, um, that anointed him for his death, you know, he said, wherever this gospel is preached going forward, this will always be preached alongside it. Okay. There was another area where we looked at where he said, I'm going to be with you. This is going to diffuse. This will not end with me. This is going to reach all nations, all time, all all people as it goes forward. This is going to be what my gospel does. It's not going to end. It doesn't stop until I stop it. Okay, Until I come back and I punch the clock on this world, this gospel will continue to be preached in all nations. Now, again, we've kind of talked about before how there are those who have taken this and said, see, that is the formula. All we have to do is get the gospel to the right number of people at the right time. And boom, we can kickstart this whole in time thing. Now, that's not in here either. There's no expiration date in parentheses and there is no in time formula. That God said, well, there's just this one group out there that if you just get the gospel to them, man, I will punch the time. I'm waiting on you. Once you get this done, then I will finally come back. That's not anywhere in here. Okay. What is in here is a very, very clear commandment to us. It has not been fulfilled and done. You are not off the hook. This applies to you, to all of us. All of us are tasked with this commandment right here. Jesus was not giving this to only his apostles. He was giving it to the some 500 disciples that were sitting with him on this mountain in Galilee. And he told all of them, you are all to go into the world. You are all to preach the gospel to every nation. You are all to teach people about Jesus. Every single one of us. This was not taught. He, he wasn't having a seminary discussion here. He wasn't saying only to the males in the room who are able to teach other people. He said, no, every one of you are believers. Every one of you are professors and every one of you need to be teaching people about Jesus. Okay. This is a commandment that goes for all of us. When you look in first Peter chapter two. If you're wondering where I get that from, if you're wondering why I would say that, go to first Peter chapter two, first Peter chapter two, verse nine, he will say this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. This, and he goes on to say, having your conversations honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak evil against you. And he goes into that, but he makes the point to say, you, all of you are a royal priesthood. All of you are a chosen people. All of you have been tasked to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what that phrase, show forth his works, you know what that means? To proclaim. You know what the word preach means? To proclaim. You know what we are all called to do? To proclaim. That's what we're all there. There are those who God has specifically called to serve in the role of pastor, teacher, bishop. Every one of you has been called into the role of royal priesthood proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all tasked with. Every single one of us. It is interesting. And I, you know, There's all this time, there's all these struggles to try to divide everybody up into what they can and cannot do. This is what I find explicitly clear in the gospel. Every single person, man, woman, and child, no matter age, sex, race, color, creed, whatever, has been tasked to be the proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's in there. All of you have been giving the ministry of reconciliation. All of you have been called to be ambassadors. All of you have been called to be part of the royal priesthood of God. No discrimination. The question then is, when we're tasked with this, do we, are we actually doing it? See, the problem is, is what we'll get into the habit of is we'll start just bringing that in to one or two select people and saying, no, you are the only Ones who were able to do this. Taking the responsibility and really taking away the God-given commandment from the entire church congregation. You do realize, and I hope you do, that I cannot do this alone. There is no way possible that I could reach, teach, or proclaim like this is expressed here by myself. That's because Jesus never meant for it to be that way. He called me and said, you, I have placed in a place to proclaim and teach my people in this area and to serve in the role as pastor, teacher, bishop, that whole thing that's given to us there in in Paul's writings. But he did not say you are the only one who has been given authority to teach or preach the gospel to people in the world. In fact, he said all of you are supposed to. All of us are supposed to make disciples. Priscilla and Aquila were not pastor teachers, but they made a disciple of Apollos. In fact, they made a disciple of a future preacher. Okay? So they are all tasked. Paul- Priscilla and Aquila were going out there just doing what God had commanded them to do. They were living. That is the perfect. I love those two because they are the perfect example of what you would call laity. Laity. The lay people, the non-called-out pastor, teacher, bishop, evangelist roles, those people, the people who were the congregation of whatever church they were, they were all out there teaching and proclaiming the works that Jesus Christ had done for them. That's what they were doing. It may happen upon Apollos. Hey, buddy, let me kind of expound some things a little more perfectly for you. thats I mean, they came all the way from Rome to do that. They are living out, they are embodying what is displayed here by Jesus. I have called all of you to do this. You were all tasked with that. And the reason why I harp on that is because we get away from what our purpose is. We get into thinking that all our, our, some told of our existence is just coming in here, parking it on a bench for an hour and a half, one time a week, maybe twice a week. And that's just what we just exist in this place. Worse than that is we get into the mindset of we exist in this place to continue on a denominational trend so it doesn't die out. That is the worst mindset possible. That's not a biblical mindset. Jesus Christ didn't say, I have all authority and this is what I want you to do. Occupy space to keep your denomination alive. I don't find that in here. If that was all Jesus wanted... That would be a pretty shallow existence for us. I don't, I don't really need your help. I don't need you to do it. I just want you just to occupy this space. I want you to keep a name alive. I want you to make sure that the tradition has been upheld. That's, that's, that's all I need from you. That's not what he said. In fact, he expressed something completely contrary to that. He said, no, what I have tasked you with, my church, what I have yet tasked you with, what I have gifted you, how I have created you, how I have uniquely wired you, is to go forth That means you're actually not occupying space. You're getting outside of your occupied space. I want you to get out of here and I want you in every day of your life wherever you're at to proclaim my praises for the wondrous works that I have done in your life. I want you to go out and I want you to talk to other people about me and then I want you to make disciples in my teachings. And emphasize my teachings. Not what tradition for 2,000 years has adopted as normative. No, what Jesus said is normative. That's what you teach. Not trying to work around love your neighbors in some kind of backwards way that you can still treat people disrespectfully or less than human. But no, loving them. The unlovable ones. The ones that nobody else thinks you should love. Teaching people that that's actually what Jesus taught. And make a disciple of that. Not make a disciple of the tradition. Not make a disciple of the denomination. Not make a disciple of the practices that your great-great-grandfather did. Making disciples of what Jesus taught us to do. That is our express commandment from the one who holds all authority. So when we run up against things that we go, man, Jesus didn't really say that. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. Well, where do we fall in that line? Who do we trust and go with? Who has the authority? Well, but that's not how we've always done it. Well, there's always been debate about this. Grand, have all the debates you want to. But if Jesus clearly says to do this and we're making disciples of what Jesus said, not what everybody else says, then that's who we follow and where our traditions, practices, and techniques don't line up with that, then I've just got really a pretty good, clear teaching of Jesus that that stuff gets to go away. I don't care how long it's been in existence. I don't care if it's been 2,000 years of, well, this is how we've always done it. Well, did Jesus say it? Because if he didn't, I don't think that's where we line up with. Well, but I mean, that's being really radical. I mean, you're going to change something that everybody's really comfortable with. Great. I want you to be really uncomfortable with everything that we have created. I want you really comfortable with what Jesus Christ said. If you are comfortable with what Jesus said, but uncomfortable in every aspect of your life. Great. It means you're on the right side. Oh, but that means I won't be as popular in all my Facebook groups. People won't talk to me anymore. People won't associate with me anymore. People won't be my friend anymore because I'm not just regurgitating the same stuff that everybody likes to hear. Great. That's an awesome place to be in. You know, the church was absolutely exploding when the world was trying to destroy it. Catch that. The church was absolutely exploding When the world was trying to destroy it, it was when we started getting really cozy with the world that the church started dying. When we started saying, hey, you know what? Let's just kind of expand this thing out. Let's get let's hug up to Rome. Oh, look, now we're the official religion of Rome. That's got to be a positive thing, right? Look at what happens when we are so buddied up with our national government. We die. We die. Look at how we were in the beginning when the national government was trying to kill us and actually were doing a pretty good job at it. They couldn't stop it. It was spreading into areas of the world. They would go to Jerusalem and try to snuff it out there and it was like trying to hit a bug. They just went everywhere. In fact, it's talked about that. They scattered from Jerusalem and all of a sudden it's like, now we're in Galatia, now we're in Pontus, now we're in Corinth, now we're in... It's like, yeah, you tried to kill us here. And as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not even prevail against my kingdom. Watch what happens. Our purpose is huge and it has not stopped. (laughs) This right here is still applicable to us today. In fact, it's the reason we're here. Ask yourself the question this morning. Why do we exist? Why do we exist? What is our purpose as this group of believers here? Why do we exist? Why are we gathered here? Why do we do what we do? Why do we exist? Think about that. Think about that over the next two, three, four, five weeks, 10 months, however long you want to do it. Think about that. You know, there's been times where we haven't really, you know, we kind of, you, you, you get like mission statements at, at organizations, okay? When you have an organization or a, or a corporation or whatever, a lot of times they'll come up with mission statements to say, why does this organization exist? What is the purpose of this organization? You know, like when we're, when I'm doing stuff with with Sweetwater Outreach, you know, we have kind of a mission statement. That is, we exist for the purpose of trying to bring clean, safe water to the people of Africa and, you know, things like that. That's our purpose. And we try to organize and orchestrate everything around that mission statement to say why we exist. It is not, I'm going to say it like this. It's not good enough for us to have the simple, easy statement of we exist to praise God. That is a very vague statement. I would rather us really nail down why we exist. Now, I have my opinion of it, obviously. But I want you to think about it. Think about it over the next few weeks. Think about it. Go back and read through the entire book of Matthew. Go back and look and see if you yourself can come up with a mission statement as to why this church exists here. Does it line up with what Jesus taught? Is our mission statement based off of what Jesus commanded us to do? And how would that look? What does that look like? What does that mean we do? How does that mean we act and function? Luke also gave account of this. And we've talked before that in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, those who are kind of, they're the three that run alongside each other. Doesn't mean that John's outside. It just means John's focus. As you read through John, you'll find that John's book, takes a very different approach to the life of Jesus. He's just angled it a different way. So the synoptic gospels, they talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've said before, even though it's not, You know, an absolute fact. It doesn't have to be this way. If it's said once, it's enough. But if it's listed out in all three, that's a pretty potent indicator. That three separate witnesses on one event gave the same testimony saying this is what you should do. That means it's pretty important. That means it's something that we can't just glance off of. Okay? So here in Luke's account, he says in verse 46... Of Luke chapter 24. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my father to you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you endure you, until you be endued um, with the power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he parted from them and carried up into the heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now, the key point of that that I wanted to grab was Jesus' commandment. We had Mark's account, we have Matthew's account, Luke's account, even though it is less descriptive, okay, if you want to use it that way, then Mark and Matthew's has this same central tenet. What do you need to do, church? And he says, you are to go forth and preach that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the, in, in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Okay. That gives a lot of insight. It began at Jerusalem, but to be preached in all nations, it has to go out from Jerusalem, which is another just feather in the cap of the argument that it couldn't have all happened at Jerusalem or that it could not have begun at Jerusalem. It would have begun and ended at Jerusalem, okay? So it didn't happen in Pentecost in 50 days. It's still going on. But the fact is still there. Jesus tells them, you have a mission. Your mission is to go to all nations and preach repentance and remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Make disciples of that. Make disciples of the teachings of... Of Jesus Christ. Make disciples of his teachings about repentance, remission of sins, loving God, loving your neighbor, loving your wife, loving your husband, loving your kids, loving, loving that's he says that's what you're to make disciples of. So if you wanted a simplified, condensed, straightforward explanation of what it means to have identity hope, and purpose in the resurrection, this is it. The Great Commission is it. To have a simplified, condensed, straightforward explanation of what it means to have identity, hope, and purpose in the resurrection, the Great Commission is it. This is Christ saying, Paul... You are who I have made you to be by the resurrection. Your identity, your purpose, your hope is to go forward and preach the resurrection. And that's exactly what Paul did. And that's what Paul says in chapter 15. I'm just doing what I have been tasked to do. I'm living out all the great works that Christ has done in me. I'm proclaiming the marvelous things he has done for me. I mean, this goes all the way back to the Gadarene man, the wild Gadarene that we preached about for so long, about that Gentile guy who went back to Decapolis in a big Gentile area and preached to the Gentiles the gospel of what Jesus Christ had done for them, who wanted so badly to hang out near Jesus. And Jesus said, no, what I want you to do, go back to your people, go back to your neighborhoods, go back to your job and tell them what great and marvelous things God has done for you. That is purpose, identity, and hope of the resurrection lived out in action. So if we could form, I guess I'm going to go ahead and, and, and give it to you a little bit. If we could form a mission statement for our church and how it is to operate, then this would be it. As brought out from the Great Commission... That we are to go everywhere and proclaim the gospel, proclaim repentance, proclaim remission to sins of sins, proclaim baptism, obedience, proclaim the love of God and the love of your neighbor. That would be number one. Go everywhere. Now, again, that's that's a people automatically think that what I'm going to do to fulfill this means I have to get on a plane and go to Africa. That may be part of what you're going to do. In fact, I would tell everybody in the room, that is still part of you. You do not have to have a neon sign drop out of heaven and say, go to Africa, go to Asia for you to do that. You have been given gifts by God that are able to be used anywhere in the world. It's not a matter of can you, it's just will you actually do it, okay? But that's not, the, that's not the complete fulfillment of this. That's not like the ultimate, this is what he's saying. You have people in your sphere of existence that qualifies as everywhere. Whether that's at home, whether that's at school, whether that's at church, whether that's at work, whether that's at Walmart. As we have said numerous times, that means go everywhere. It means you're not just going to get it here, you're going to get it Everywhere. Priscilla and Aquila, on their way back from Rome, stopped by Apollos. That that was not any kind of, okay, well, we need to specifically go to this specific area. That was just them existing where they existed at that time. Go everywhere and proclaim the gospel. Go everywhere and proclaim the teachings of Jesus Christ. Go everywhere and make disciples. The whole idea is not just in proclaiming the things of Jesus Christ, not just arguing the superiority of theology about grace versus, you know, works. That's not, that's not what we were called to do. We were called to make disciples of the teachings of Jesus Christ. That is a much deeper, more intimate thing. And that involves a lot more stuff. In fact, it involves a lot of stuff that applies to daily life. And unless you're John MacArthur or somebody else who makes a living by just arguing against people, I'm going to say that that's probably not going to be the main part of your life that really needs addressed by the teachings and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think a lot of your problems are going to come to, am I loving my wife like I should? Am I loving my husband like I should? Am I being faithful to them like I should? Am I taking care of my kids like I should? Am I being the boss I'm supposed to be? Am I being the employee I'm supposed to be? Am I being the member of my school that I'm supposed to be? You know, this gets back to things that we've said before. The greatest school ministry you have is not one of us pastors, but rather people who are actually living in the school every day. Okay, whether that's teachers or whether that's students. People love, it's a great thing to lament about the state of the public schools. And my question is, what in the world are you doing about it? Voting Republican doesn't seem to fix it. You know what fixes it? Getting in there and exampling for people what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what fixes, that's, that's how this gets fixed in all aspects. It's not the ballot box. It's your daily life. When the Christians were being persecuted and having their heads chopped off, they had the most effect in their communities because of their daily lives, not because they had the right government to play for them. So the, uh, the idea that's given by the Great Commission is you go everywhere, wherever you are in life, you go with the purpose of proclaiming the great and marvelous things God has done for you, proclaiming the, the teachings of repentance and remission of sins, proclaiming the love of God and love of your neighbor. That's, that just becomes our mission statement of who we are. We need to adopt the missional mindset. You are not here to exist. Christ did not die on the cross for you to simply exist. He gave us a mission. He gave us work to do. We are people, men and women, who are called and commanded by Christ to preach and proclaim the gospel to everyone, everywhere, wherever we may be. That's part of our missional mindset. We are a people who are called to make disciples, to nurture individuals in the grace and mercy of God and train them in the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we do this first by being true disciples ourselves. We talked about this with the Pharisees and how the Pharisees were all about teaching the things of Moses, but then Jesus said, but don't do like they do because they don't do what Jesus—I mean, what Moses taught, okay? They're good. They're right on what they're teaching, but they're not living like that. And we made the point that you make disciples by your actions, not by what you say most of the time. You can say a lot of really good stuff, but when people see you act the way that you do, you're making disciples of your actions, not by what you say. So how do we counter that and leverage that for the way that the missional mindset that God has given us? Well, it's not just going into your place of work and saying a lot of good God sounding things. It's rather living in godly ways. So if you've ever questioned anything about what your purpose is, about what your life is meant for, what God has done for you, what he has commanded us to do, what he has given for us, what he has called us to, then this is where you go. You know, a lot of times people will have the question, well, when I'm starting to read or what I'm, how I'm supposed to study my Bible and go through things, where do I turn? And I have just in the last several years, I've gone, look, just go read the Gospels. Don't read anything else right now. Just read the Gospels. Go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read it over and over and over and over again. Let that be part of your daily reading. Psalms are awesome. Proverbs are great. You know, love all that stuff. Go read what Jesus actually said to you to do. Go read what he said. Go read how he dealt with people. Go look at how he loved on people. Go look how he helped people. And then go look at how he said, now I want you to do this too. And let the world come because, you know, we get this idea that we will use it. I've heard it, you know, so many times and it's not throwing off on anybody. But, you know, we used to have this thing of where we would say, "Okay, well, people want to know about you and want to know about your church and all this stuff. And we'd always be like, oh, just come and see, come and see, come to the church and see, come and see how we are. If this is the only place they see it, that's a big problem. If this is the only place that they see it, if in our lives we are so whatever about what Christ taught, they would say, oh, well, I can't really get it across to you. I can't really explain it. I can't really. Why don't you just come and see? Come hear it from my preacher. Jesus here would say to every one of you, I want you to show them what I have done for you. It's not come to the church and see it. It's see it in the church in the world. It's see our lives in the world and how this has affected us. It's not let's let you come in here and figure it out. It's you see it out there and that should hopefully drive you to come in here. My interactions with you out there show you this. My interactions with you in the world show you this. My interactions out there are an invitation to come and see. To see the peace, the joy, the love, the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness, the greatness of Jesus Christ in you, in the world. Now, obviously, that does not completely sum up every possible thing. We have spent almost three full years talking about this. We have gone through 28 chapters. Very, very meticulously. I hope that in those years, I have adequately enough explained the teachings of Jesus Christ and how he would have us to live. But I will close with how John closes out the gospel. This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. May God bless us to work on this.